Okay, so like I said, we are busy with the series on the kings, the lives of the kings. And one of the reasons why we're doing that is um, all of you should know the saying that history repeats itself. Okay, so um, in that idea, uh, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So we always hear the short version that history repeats itself, but it comes from the fact that if you don't remember history, then you are going to do it again. The sad thing is, <clears throat> we do learn history and we still repeat history. Um, and why this is important is because uh, this beautiful, each time history repeats itself, the price goes up. Um, which, when I saw it, I thought that's so true. Um, from things like the amount of violence, the amount of death, um, the amount of damage, in terms of everything, it goes up. So we are going back to the kings to try and see whether we can't learn from their lives. Because yes, they lived thousands of years ago, but maybe we can find some principles and we've been digging through them. I want, today, I want to um, start with the story of Saul, the first king of Israel. Um, Nick mentioned him quickly. I also mentioned him quickly uh, two weeks back. But I want to take Saul's life and um, also compare it to the Exodus. Because as we are going to breeze through them, patterns will emerge. And I want us to talk about those patterns. So, on the one hand, you've got the Exodus. Why is the Exodus important? Because that's where the kingdom, that's where Israel begins. That's also where the kingdom begins. Because as we heard in 1 Samuel 8, it's the Israelites who, after they take over the Promised Land, which is the end of the Exodus, ask for a king. And then our first king, who we hear of his life from 1 Samuel 9 onwards. I can only give you the highlights. Well, not all of them are necessarily highlights, the high and low lights, like any good um, haircut. Uh, but I encourage you, well, we encourage you to read through these texts. Um, take a chapter every day, two chapters. Uh, you remember I told you two weeks back that okay, one, Samuel was, one and two Samuel was one and two Samuel. But when you get to one and two Kings and one and two Chronicles, Chronicles is a repetition of what happens in 1 and 2 Kings, but with a little bit of a different theological view. So it's like they both viewed the same motor accident, but the one guy saw this angle, and the other guy heard his story and said, no, no, wait. Yes, it happened like this, but these things are important. So keep that in mind when you read 1 and 2 Kings. Try and read the text from 1 and 2 Chronicles with it, because then you see the difference. But okay, we are going to be talking about the Exodus and the first king. So the beginning of the kingdom and the first king. When we take a look at the beginning of the kingdom, in terms of the Exodus, we all know the Israelites were suffering in Egypt. They were praying to God. Um, beautiful song, the Prince of Egypt, deliver us. And Moses is sent. I'm not going to talk about Moses' whole history, but let's start with the burning bush. He's, he meets God in a burning bush who tells him to go back 
and that he will be the one to save God's people. Moses' reaction is, but I stutter, so I can't do it. Then God says, okay, I will equip your brother Aaron to be your voice, because he doesn't stutter. And Moses goes back and he confronts the Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, no, 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 these guys are really nice cheap labor, and they don't eat too much meat, and they've got lots of little festivals, so they're good to maintain. We're not going to let them go. What happens after this? Remembers. Yes, the plagues. How many of them are there? Ten, yes. Which of course is a symbol in biblical terms of the completeness. So it's, you don't need any more plagues, they are complete. Let's do a little quiz um, about which, what are the ten plagues? Who can remember them? Yes, frogs are in there. Locusts. Yes. The blood in the river. Yes. Okay, what did you say? Yeah, I, almost, I almost said a piece, but it's not a piece. Well, there is there is one that the Bible just calls boiled. Yes, that's the one I was referring to. So it could be. We don't know. There is rain, it's sun, it's hail, hailstorms. And it's darkness, isn't it? Yes, darkness. And isn't it your eldest son? Yes, everybody keeps forgetting the most dramatic one, the death of the eldest son. Okay, so this happens because Pharaoh says no. God says, says to Pharaoh through Moses, through Aaron. I'm saying it in English, it's just Aaron, right? Aaron. Aaron, thank you. Thank you very much, Chris, our English interpreter. <laughs> says through Moses, through Aaron, thank you, that I will then show you my majesty, so much so that you cannot say anything else than you are God, I will release your people. And this the process began. Begins, we have water that turns to blood, that's the first one. And of course you've got Pharaoh's magicians and high priests and priests who say, that's easy, we can do that too. And they pray and they turn a little bowl of water into, it looks like blood, it's red in colouring, it doesn't say it's blood. And Pharaoh says, ah, oh, and he doesn't listen to them. Interestingly enough, in the text it says, for seven, the Egyptians were not able to drink the water because it was blood. None of us really want to drink blood, unless you're a vampire, which they weren't. So they had to dig beside the river to try and get water, and it lasted for a week. So that's interesting. The priests made a little bowl, but okay. After this, he sends the frogs, which Chris told us of. The one you all missed is he turns, he literally takes the dust, the wind blows the dust up, and it's Egypt, there's a lot of dust, that blows the dust up and it turns into gnats. So you can imagine how awful it must have been for the poor Egyptians and the animals and everywhere because it's just mostly snaps everywhere. Still the Pharaoh says no I'm not going to let you go. After the gnats comes the flies, there are flies, um, who are also everywhere. After the flies 
God says, okay, I'm going to give you, and it's interesting because this is the, yeah, this is the fifth one. The fifth plague, God says, I'm going to kill all of your animals. All of them. Not just the eldest, all of them. And that does happen. So interesting, right? At halfway, there's death already. Which, looking back, we can say that's a foreshadowing. But still the Pharisees know. So all the animals die. Then, God tells Moses, take ash. And remember, when animals die because of sickness, they are burnt. Because you don't want the sickness to spread. So there was ash everywhere. Take some of the ash, throw it in front, up in front of the Pharaoh's face. And it will become an illness that will cause boils. Herpes. As Margaret. Not Margaret. As Beardy was saying. Sorry, Margaret. It was not Margaret, it was Beardy. As Muriel said. So they get boils, um, which is really awful. They are scratching and itching, and it's not nice. Every, not just the humans, everybody gets boils. After that is the hail. And it's interesting. And it's a, just a little beautiful side note. When Moses goes to warn them, warn the Pharaoh of the hail, he says, God is going to send hail, it's going to be really big. So, warn your people, let them take the animals that they have left, everything that is valuable, that's outside, let them put it inside. And what happens? Everybody says, whatever. And they leave their things outside. One of, there are people who are afraid of taking things inside. And the hell comes and it destroys everything. Right. Then from there, we go to locusts. So what has not been destroyed by the hail, the crops specifically, there's one crop that was not um, ready to harvest, that was still okay after the hail. The locusts eat that. After that is the darkness. And after that comes the death of the firstborn sons. And also the firstborn um, animals, specifically male animals. So all of your um, prize possessions, remember your children were also your possessions in those days, all of them die. And as we know, after this, he sets them free and the exodus happens. What's interesting and important to remember is that with all of these plagues, none of them hit the Israelites. The Israelites live in a specific region in Egypt, and all of these pass over the Israelites. So imagine you have been praying for centuries to a God that Joseph told you about for him to deliver you. And now you have, it's like front seats, front row seats. You see all of these things happening that nobody can explain. God is doing all of these things, and he's protecting you. It feels like it should be a very powerful message. Sorry, we couldn't scroll up to the next dance. But okay. They, they see all of these things. The Exodus happens. Great Exodus. Interesting, when you read the text, it says God didn't lead them the shortest way. Because he knew if he led them the shortest way, they would become afraid. And start doubting. So he leads them a little bit of a longer way around. So that they don't confront the Philistines immediately. And again, what is amazing, how does he lead them? With a column of clouds and a column of fire. Right through the day they've got a column of clouds that leads them and a column of fire that leads them in the evenings. 
there's, I can't even imagine it. But so this is their life. This is how they are walking. God is literally in front of them. And they get to the Red Sea. And of course we know once they get to the Red Sea, they hear that the Pharaoh has decided, this is not how it's going to end. My honor is on the line. So gather all of our troops, we're going to go after them. And what's interesting is these people who have seen the plagues, but were protected, who were led by columns, God's presence before them. When they hear about the Egyptians and they see the sea in front of them, what is their reaction? You should have left us in Egypt to die. Because there are graves in Egypt. So why not just leave us there? It would have been better for us. They've witnessed all of these things. That's their first reaction. God says to Moses, guys, just calm down, breathe a little. And we know he splits the seas apart. He splits the Red Sea apart. They walk through. Once they've walked through, Moses closes the water on the Egyptians. All of them drown. And it's amazing. They then begin their journey to the Promised Land, which is, well, if you've ever seen pictures of that area, most of it is desert, but not all of it is arid desert, but all of it is horrible. So they've just witnessed this wonderful miracle. And then they walk for three days and they're struggling to find water. And what do they do? It would have been better to die in Egypt than to live without water. Three days. God's, they come to a place called Mara, which is the word for bitter in Hebrew. As you can guess, the water is bitter. God says, okay, put a stick in, it'll become sweet. It becomes the sweetest water ever. If they could have bottled it and sold it, we would still be drinking it today rather than ever. They, so they have water. He leads them on. Their next stop is a place with 14 springs and beautiful palm trees and they can eat and they can rest and they can drink and then from there he takes them on into the desert the real desert and they don't have food and they don't have water well they have food but it's not it's not meat and it's not so it's, it's not like our sunday lunch roasts and i think we as Afrikaners would probably feel the same if we didn't have meat every day so they start mumbling again like you, but I mean, okay, each of you were enslaved, so we got hit, and some of us got killed, and we had to work in mad, but at least we had meat on the table every night. So it would have been better to be in Egypt and enslaved. What does God do? He says, Okay, I will provide for you. As you are traveling through the desert every night, I will send quails, and in the morning, um, I will send you, you will be able to make bread. They call it, they start calling it manna. It's not a, a grain that we know, but they can make bread of it. Okay. But he asks them, please just take enough for you and your family for the day. Because tomorrow I will provide for you again. And at least I remember that I gave you a Sabbath. So on the sixth day, I will give you twice as much. So you have for Friday and for Sabbath. What do the Israelites do? They take more. God says, that's not really that great. Please stop doing that. But he still gives, he still provides for them. 
Then they get to, as they, so he provides them as they're journeying through the desert, they have food and water, nice food, every day. They get, get out of the desert, but they are again in a place where there is not as much water. Now you would think that he has provided water for them, he's provided quails and manna, that they might think, okay, but God probably has a plan. But again, oh, we should just have stayed in, in Egypt. And this is where Moses is instructed to hit the rock and the water comes from the rock. So God provides for them again. On their way to um, the promised land, they are in a battle with the Amalekites, one of the tribes who live in the promised land. Remember, it was not one big kingdom. It was different kingdoms, smaller kingdoms. So the Amalekites get word of these guys who are traveling up. They get an idea of what's going to happen and they attack. And this is where God says, Moses, pray with your hands in the air. And as long as your hands are in the air, I will give the victory. And then we hear of the two guys, um, Aaron being one of them, holding up Moses' hands. So it's literally one day, it's a very small group of Israelites in comparison to the Amalekites that they win. So God gives them the victory. From there, they are moving on up, and they get to Mount Sinai. Sinai. What's the English pronunciation? Sinai. Thank you. Mount Sinai. And there, a lot of things happen. We associate Mount Sinai with just the Ten Commandments. I don't know. Maybe you associate with everything that happened, and then you're great. But when I normally think of Mount Sinai, I think Ten Commandments, golden calf, right? Good. And Moses throwing the Ten Commandments. But what actually happens is the Israelites moan that they are tired, they've been journeying so long, they're so, and they are so unsure of God's presence. Which it um, hits me in the chest when he's done all of these things and they're still unsure of his presence. But he says, okay, make camp, and I will come with my presence onto Mount Sinai. Which he does. The description is beautiful. It's, there's the smoke surrounds the whole top of the mountain because God comes down in fire. There's lightning. There's no doubt that God is on the mountain. So the presence that they've asked for is there. What is their reaction? They are afraid. And they say, no, 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 we, we can't. Moses, you go. We don't want to go. So they want his presence, but when his presence appears, they don't want it anymore. They want somebody else to go. Moses goes, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and he gives him other instructions for them to be his people and for him to be their God. Moses comes down. He tells them all of these things, and they're like, yes, we like this idea. We will go with this. And the covenant is made again. The covenant that he made with Abraham is now made with Israel. He will, they will be his people, he will be their God. After this, Moses goes up again, because God says, I will give you the Ten Commandments on, on um, rock so that you have it. So we all miss that. He appeared, they said, we, we are afraid. Moses goes up, the covenant is renewed. There's a lot of things that happen, and then he goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights, 
which again is a biblical way of saying a complete number. And he receives the Ten Commandments. Interestingly enough, while he's up there, God is also giving him, instructing him on building the tabernacle. The tent of God's um, abiding with Israel, which is strange when you initially read it, why is he doing that? Until you hear what's happening. Oh, and also, so he's talking about the building of the tabernacle, and he's also saying that uh, Aaron and his sons will become the priests of Israel. Meanwhile, back down the mountain, the Israelites, I mean, 40 days is a very long time to wait. And it's not necessarily that it was 40 days, but it was a long time. So they, as all of us would do, they say, you know, we were starting to doubt. I mean, Moses went up, but he's not here. So they go to Aaron and say, please provide us with a God so that we can pray to that God. This is with the clouds and the smoke and the fire all still there. And Aaron says, okay, bring me all your gold. And he casts them into a calf. And they pray to the calf. God says to Moses, you better get down there because these guys are doing all kinds of strange things. And I have to tell you, at this point, I'm losing my patience. So I'm thinking, I'll let them go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with them. Because if I go with them, I'm going to kill them. And Moses says, no, 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 God, remember, you promised us all of these things. He reminds God. God says, okay, fine. <coughs> Moses goes down. He hears and sees all of them because they were dancing and feasting and with, you know, they don't have water, they don't have food, but they're feasting and dancing. And, and he becomes so angry that he throws the stones. And God is angry with him. Moses, Aaron, he goes to Aaron and says, what's happening? <laughs> Aaron, like a good, responsible guy, says, oh, no, these guys, these Israelites, they're so, they're kind of like flaky. So I was afraid that if I didn't do what they asked, then they would do something to me. So I just did what they were asking. I did nothing wrong, which is not true. And the interesting thing is that's when the Levites come in. So initially Aaron and his sons were supposed to be the ones who became the priests. But in the end, because Aaron was so responsible, they don't. God is determined at this stage to not go further with the Israelites. He is, he's, he's, he says, I will make sure that you will be able to get to the promised land. I will keep my promise. Remember Nick told us last time, God always keeps his promises. I will keep my promise to get you to the promised land, no pun intended, but I'm not going with you because I, I can't. Like today we would say, I can't even. <laughs> And Moses keeps on begging. And the Israelites, like good Israelites, they suddenly realize, oh no, but we were so wrong. And they fast and they take off their jewelry and they, please God, forgive us. And he does. He tells him, okay, I will go with you. And I will be your God. I will lead you to victory like I have done a few times. Side note. And this is where Moses comes and says, but how will we know that you're with us? How will other people know that you're with us? Please give us something tangible 
so that we can say, this is where God is. God who has led them, I think a column of clouds and a column of fire is rather tangible. Quails and manna is tangible. Water is tangible. Yet, we want a tangible place. Which also means a smaller place. We don't like God up there on the mountain in smoke and fire, because that reminds us how big he is. And that's where the tabernacle comes in. God says, okay, Moses, build the tabernacle. And one person, Moses, would go and meet with God every day, and the Israelites would know that God was there because the column of, of clouds would then be above the tabernacle. They go from being free with a God who is active and present with them, asking him to please rather, let's have that, and then you be there. You have to go with us, please, but you be there. Okay? And the, yes, like you had, you can, the one you showed before, Saul. So, the pattern. Every time God does something, and you've heard, this was just the highlights. This is not everything. Every time he does something, the reaction is, they stood in awe and faced. Five minutes later, some of it was five days. We told you to leave us alone and let us go on being slaves of the Egyptians. It would be better to be slaves there than to die here in the desert or to die in Egypt than to be here. Then God provides and they're back to they stood in all and they had faith. Okay, this brings us to where they get to the promised land, they are settled. And one of the first things they ask for is we need a king. Because everybody else has kings. God says, if you get a king, you can listen to the podcast about that, there are consequences. They say, no, we're fine with the consequences, let's, let's have a king. So God decides, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And we meet Saul in 1 Samuel 9. Saul is a tall guy, he's a head taller than everybody else in Israel. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is a very small tribe, but one of the most beloved, because Benjamin was one of Jacob's most beloved kids. And we meet Saul when he is out searching for donkeys. Some of his dad's donkeys got lost and he has to go and find them. So he's looking for donkeys for his father's donkeys. We hear he's gone through the whole of Benjamin's area, which is not very big, <coughs> and he's desperate. They can't find his donkeys. His servant that is with him says they reach an area and he says, but wait, I've heard that there's a the seer, the seer who is the prophet who is Samuel, is in the village. Let's go and ask him. They go in, and as they go in, they meet Samuel. And Samuel was told by God the previous evening that I'm going to send you a, a, a man who's going to say he's looking for donkeys. This is the king. They have a conversation where Saul asks Samuel, do you know the seer? Um, Samuel luckily doesn't believe in dramatic pauses because in a modern movie you would have, well, no, not movies, reality shows, you would have 10 minutes of a dramatic pause and then he would say, Yes, I am he. But he says, Yes, I am. And he invites him to go with, he was bringing a sacrifice. He invites him to go up with him and Saul gets the best piece of the sacrifice. And um, Samuel tells him, Don't worry about your father's donkeys. They're found, they're safe. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow. They eat, they sleep, 
As Samuel is leaving, uh, sorry, as Saul is leaving, Samuel anoints him. <laughs> and it's not the anointing we do. It's not the reformed anointing. He literally takes a jug of olive oil and breaks it over, over Saul's head. So Saul is dripping in olive oil. And Samuel says, you are the king. And I want to read these few verses to you. Where... See, I want to. I want to hear these few verses where Samuel is telling Saul of exactly the things that will happen. And of course, if these things happen, you would think that he knows that God is with him. Okay. The Lord anoints you as ruler of his people, Israel, who will rule his people and protect them from all their enemies. And this is the proof to you that the Lord has chosen you. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zalzah in the territory of Benjamin. They will tell you that the donkeys you were looking for have been found, so that your father isn't worried anymore about them, but about you. And he keeps asking, what shall I do about my son? You will go on from there, at Ta from there until you come to the sacred tree at Tabor, where you will meet three men on their way to offer a sacrifice to God at Bethel. One of them will be leading three young goats, another one will be carrying three loaves of bread, and the third one will have a leather bag full of wine. They will greet you and offer you two of the loaves, which you are to accept. Then you will go to the hill of God in Gibeah, where there is a Philistine camp. At the entrance of the town, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the altar on the hill, playing harps, drums, flutes, and lyres, they will be dancing and shouting. Suddenly the Spirit of the Lord will take control of you, and you will join in their religious dancing and shouting, and will become a different person. When these things happen, do whatever God leads you to do. You will go ahead of me to Gilgal, where I will meet you and offer burnt sacrifices and fellowship sacrifices. Wait there seven days until I come and tell you what to do. Kind of specific, right? <laughs> Not, you can't really think that these are things that happen all, every time, all of the time, every day. And if you read further, you will see that as Saul goes, all of these things happen exactly. Up to the loaves of bread. Loaves of bread. All of these happen. The Spirit of the Lord takes possession of him. So now you would think that he knows, okay, God wants me to be king. When he gets home, people ask him, how did you, what happened? Um, and what happened to your father's donkeys? And he says, no, Samuel told me that my father's donkeys are okay. And they say, wow, you spoke to Samuel, that's amazing. Did he say anything else? What is his answer? No, nothing. So he does not tell them that God chose him. God asks Samuel to gather the tribes of Israel together. And he says, okay, there is a king, you asked for one, you're getting one. All of the tribes, please stand together. He chooses from the tribes, he chooses Benjamin. Benjamin comes forward. From Benjamin, he chooses Saul's family, who then come forward. And then from, the, from Saul's family, he chooses uh, Saul's father, Kish. Not Kish, the one you eat. Kish, um, which makes me hungry now. So he chooses Kish, the family of Kish, and he is about to choose Saul, but then there is no Saul. And everybody's, whereas Samuel is, I'm sure there was another man. 
but he's missing. God tells him, um, he is behind the barrels over there. Even with everything that happened, even with all of these promises coming true, Saul is hiding behind um, barrels, whatever. He's hiding. So they have to go and fetch Saul, which is a very good look for the first king of Israel, having to be fetched from where you were hiding. But because he's tall and handsome, Israel says, okay, great, yeah, he's our king. Of course, there are people who doubt, which is also so Israel. We ask for a king, and then when we get a king, we're like, no, but this can't be our king. Right. He, but everybody else is okay with that. And he is taken to Mizpah, where he is anointed again as the king. And everybody is happy, and everybody feels great, except those few who aren't. Then we hear of the Ammonites, who invade Yabesh. The area of Yabesh. <laughs> and remember, this is now, they've taken over the promised land, so they've won. The Israelites have won. The Ammonites come to Yabesh and they say, We are going to take you over. And the, the, the inhabitants of Yabesh say, Okay, that's fine, but let's just discuss, let's negotiate. What are we going to, how are we going to do this? That's the amount of faith there. The king says, I'm going to cut off all of your, everybody's right here. So they decided, you know, that's a little awkward. We are going to come back to you on that one. And then they send messengers to the whole, the rest of Israel to say, help us please. We want to keep our ears. Saul hears of this. And he hears also that um, there's silence. The other tribes are not really reacting. He takes two oxen and cuts them in lots of parts and sends the parts to all of the tribes of Israel to say, if you don't come and fight, this is what's going to happen to you, to all of us. So magically the Israelites suddenly decide we want to walk, we want to fight. They send word to Yahweh to tell them we are on our way, we will be, um, we will take care of the Ammonites for you, oh, sorry, the Ammonites tomorrow, and victory is won. And again, with this, typical of the Israelites, they've won a victory. Now the other Israelites, everybody's there. They've won, yay. They say, oh, but there are people who doubt him when you as King Saul. Maybe we should get these guys together and kill them, just as a sign of we don't, we don't take lightly to people who doubt. And Saul says, no, we're not going to kill them. There's nothing, we're not going to do that today. But everybody is glad. And again, his kingship is then the Philistines show up. Of course, the Philistines, the Philistines always show up. That's the, the one, one of the films on the side of the Israelites throughout the history. And Jonathan, who is Saul's son, and you might know is David's best friend later, Jonathan does a risky thing. He takes his man servant, and they go and they kill the commander. They sneak into the camp of the Philistines, they kill the commander, and this throws the Philistines into fear and they are mad with fear. They're so mad too because they're like, what, what happened? How did this happen? This is the commander. He's on the inside of the camp. These people must be insane ninjas. And they start fighting with each other. 
Saul hears this and he makes use of the opportunity. So he goes and he beats the Philistines. And the Israelites, who initially went ahead, also came out and also fought along with him. Oh, I skipped the important part. Before we get there. No, it is. Yeah, no, it is. I thought I skipped a part. It's very difficult to keep all of these things together because we are running through chapters. Okay, so he beats the Philistines there. But now the Philistines decide, okay, we hear you, but we can gather more troops. And they do that, and they launch a counterattack. And the Israelites, they take a little hit. And as the Israelites do, a lot of them flee back to their, their provinces. They're like, no, we're not really a part of this battle. Some of them go and hide in caves and other places in the wilderness. But Saul, credit, kudos to him, decides to stay. Because remember what Samuel told him? Wait to me at Gilgal. After seven days, I will be there. Tick tock, tick tock. We get to day seven. No Samuel. The people who are with Saul also start feeling jittery on the inside. Saul starts feeling jittery on the inside. It's day eight. The morning of day eight, no Samuel. What does Saul do? He says, okay, bring the, bring the stuff to me. I will do the offering. And right after he does the offering, who shows up but Samuel? And he says, but why didn't you wait for me? Of course, Saul is very logical. He says, but you said wait seven days. This is day eight. And Samuel tells him, but don't you trust God yet? Even if it's not that he will appear, that he will say what he said he would, even if it's not day seven. And there, for the first time, we hear Samuel say, because of this, your family, I, God planned to have the tribe of Benjamin be the kings. The tribe of Benjamin will no longer be the kings of Israel because of this. Okay? But Saul continues to be the king, and they continue on with the battle, and they win. Um, again, Jonathan does a move or two, and they win the battle, and Saul instructed all of Israel to not, they were not allowed to eat as a part of preparation for the war, for the battle, because of the fact that they had done wrong before God, that they needed to get the revenge on the Philistines, don't eat. Jonathan says, that's very unfair. My dad is such an awful man. I think it's wrong. And he eats honey. And he feels great. And he helps win the war. And as they win the war, everybody else says, your tummies are rumbling. All of, look at all of the things the Philistines have. Let's take some cattle and, take, and let's eat. Which of course is not what you were supposed to do. Which again causes God to say, why did you do this? And not speak to Saul. But in 1 Samuel 14, we hear that when people think of Saul's legacy, they talk about a one of victory over Israel's enemies. So he was one that fought. He fought all of the enemies. Which meant, of course, that all of your young people were enlisted, all of your young males. As God had promised 
in 1 Samuel 8, that they would constantly be at war. And if you don't have young men, they can't marry, they can't have kids, they can't help with the land. So all of those things are happening. But, right, so even though he has disobeyed God, God is still with him, God gives him the victory over all of these different tribes. The last tribe that we need to talk about is the Amalekites, where, again, they are a big presence, Saul prays, Samuel is still there, he says, God will give you the victory, but don't leave anything alive. Once you've won them, you need to kill everything, which sounds horrible. The Old Testament is horrible in that way. But if you think about war, that's what happens. Um, and that's why a lot of us don't watch war movies, because we don't like dogs and kids and babies getting killed. But that's what happens. So he tells them to kill everything. They go into battle, they win everything. What happens? They see how beautiful the prime crops and the prime cattle, prime women are. So, so Saul says, okay, I know it sounds horrible, right, to say prime women, but that's how they thought of him, uh, of us. Saul says, let's kill all of the useless ones, the ones that are old and lame, uh, and then we take the best with us to, listen how he dresses this up, to offer it to God. I mean, if along the way to where we're going to offer it, we have to eat one or two or maybe marry one, it, that's just collateral damage. And Samuel is called, he finds them at Gilgal, where they are celebrating. So they had quite a few of the cattle, possibly the women. Um, and he asks Saul why. Saul says, no, no, but we thought we would offer these to God as a tribute. So it's beautiful and holy. He, wanted, he had holy intentions. And Samuel cries, Wolf, he says, this is not what you were trying to do. You were not listening. And for that reason, God is rejecting you. He will not be with you anymore. And Samuel says, and I will also not be with you anymore. And he starts leaving. Saul, of course, falls down, begs, please forgive me. I'm so sorry that I did this again. Um, I will be faithful again. Samuel deceives. He says, okay, I will please do the offering with me and so that we can give this to God. They do the offering. Samuel goes home and then he never sees Saul again. And then we hear from 1 Samuel 16 is where Samuel is sent to choose the new king from the tribe of Judah, who then becomes the tribe from which the kings come. And the new king, of course, is David, who very interestingly, when you compare the story, Saul was tall and handsome, the eldest. Who's David? He's the youngest. He's short. He's hairy. He's, he's, not, he's not what you would want in a king. When Samuel goes to, to David's father and asks to be introduced to his sons, 
it's a beautiful story. All of these different sons come past, and Samuel is like this guy. This guy's definitely the king. He looks the part. God says no. And then in the end, there's nobody left except David. And Samuel thinks, he tells God, listen, I don't want to meddle, but really. But okay, so David is chosen. And from there, ironically, David and Saul's lives become intertwined. In the Bible, they, talk about, they say that God left Saul and he is conflicted by a demon, a spirit. And the old, it actually talks about a spirit that God sends. Now, there is where we have to think about um, how they thought of anything that had to do with your intellectual, um, your brain. I mean, they thought your brain was in your heart. Uh, so, it was possible that it might have been, if you put yourself in Saul's shoes, it might have been a guilty conscience. It might have been feelings of inadequateness, of depression, desperation, which are described as a demon. There are still people today who, when they hear you are depressed, think that you need exorcism, not antidepressants. So it's not that weird to hear that people thought it was an evil spirit. They get David to come play the lyre for him, which calms him down every time. And their stories become intertwined. Because Saul knows that David has been the one, has been chosen. And as their stories progress, you hear more and more about David and how popular he becomes, how, um, how he wins Anything, any challenge that is put before me wins. Of course, the big one is Goliath. The big one, that was a pun, was intended. <laughs> the big one is, of course, Goliath. But after that, he keeps on winning. And Saul starts thinking, this guy, he, he does what all of us would do. He becomes jealous. And he tries to get rid of David. And David is like a cockroach. He cannot get rid of David. And Saul, Saul becomes more and more paranoid. And he tries to kill David, but David is not killable. Twice we hear of so David starts out in the palace as Saul tries more and more to kill him. He has to flee, he starts hiding, he even ends up with the Philistines in the end. But twice in the running and hiding, Saul is so close to David that David actually has the chance once he goes into a cave to relieve himself where David is also hiding, so he could have killed him. And another time he um, is, I think he's sleeping, yes, he's sleeping. He's sleeping and the guys, David can go in, he's so close, he takes Saul's spear and his helmet and removes them. But David does not kill Saul. Each time he goes, he confronts Saul and says, why are you hunting me down? Look at me, I'm your faithful servant. I could have killed you, I didn't. And every time Saul says, I'm really sorry, that's true. You've been my faithful servant. I'm very sorry, I will stop trying to kill you. And then we hear Saul leaves, David leaves, and then Saul tries to kill him again. Which is a great circle. It ends when the Philistines, this is when Saul is made king, God promises, I will give you victory over the Philistines. The Philistines are back at it. They come again with 
a, a big army. This is right after David leaves them. And this time, they are winning. Interesting, when the last time that David said that David could have killed Saul and didn't, Saul says, I know you are the rightful king of Israel. Please, when you become king, don't kill my family. Please. The Philistines had attacked, Israel is losing. David is not a part of this group. David and his people, because of course, the people who asked for a king, now that David is there, Saul is still winning. Remember, Saul is winning battles, he's winning, but now there's a David. And everybody who's unhappy with the king and with the fact that they have to give their boys and have to pay tax, and because who, who said that? And then we want to go back, God said that, right before you got the king. Who are unhappy with that now go to David, so you've got these two groups. The people who want the king don't want the king anymore. But at this stage, you're just saying they don't want Saul, they want David. They are at a different place. Saul realizes that they're losing. He's badly wounded by an arrow. And he asks his manservant with him to kill him. Why? Because he doesn't want to be taken by the Philistines. You will know why now. His manservant says, I can't do it. I can't kill the man who God chose. And Saul takes his own sword and falls upon it. So he kills himself. And after seeing that, the manservant says, I don't want to be caught alone like this. People might think I killed him. So he kills himself. And then you hear that the Philistines overrun and they kill all of Saul's sons. So Jonathan is killed. All of his sons are killed. And when the Philistines find their bodies, and this is why Saul did not want to be caught, they chop off Saul's head and they send it through the whole of Israel to show them what happens when you... They take their bodies and they, um, they hammer them to the walls of the Philistines' uh, main city. That's beautiful, right? That's why you didn't want to get caught. At least he was dead, he didn't feel any of this. But so that is how the story of Saul ends. Very sad. He dies alone, depressed, he kills himself. But there's also a pattern in Saul's life. A pattern of... You know, you can go on? Yes, that's it. Um, Every time when something happens, he worships, he believes. But the moment that something, there's a challenging situation, there is a difficulty, what happens? He starts fearing and doubting. And he tries to fix the situation, aka meddling. Like deciding, okay, it's been seven days, I'll do the offering instead of standing, instead of waiting to stand. There are many times where he tries to fix things, or where he thinks, I've got the better idea. God said, destroy everything. I say, let's keep the nicest ones and offer them to God. Some of them. Offer some of them to God. In terms of the dishes of life. Why, why are we talking about this tonight? It's easy to look back at these patterns 
and think these guys are stupid if they only had been able to see. Right? Unfortunately, this is something that we do too. Especially in terms of, and that's why it's called confining God, especially in terms of the way we confine God in our lives. Um, they had a tabernacle, which in the end, of course, becomes the temple. David spends his whole life wishing to build a temple, but he's too busy getting married and doing things with wives he shouldn't um, to be able to build a temple. So Solomon, his son, builds a temple. Okay, the temple becomes a thing. You can go to them. Why, why, why did we hear they build the tabernacle? Because being confronted with God's presence was actually a little bit too much. And yet, that's what we do as well. It's not a tabernacle anymore, and a lot of us don't like incense. It's not just supposed to be burnt. To be burnt. And offerings are not made, well, not offerings of that kind, but we still do that. We can find God to Sundays and to church services. And then we like to leave Him behind because being confronted with His glory and His his being might be challenging. Because who is God? This we know from the New Testament. Who is God? God is the one who crosses all boundaries, who loves, who keeps his promises, who accepts, who has accepted us. Great, fantastic. But through us, wants to accept even more. So we love the story up to there. God loves us and has healed us and wants to be in a relationship with us, that's great. But the moment you have to move beyond yourself, that becomes a little bit. We don't like that. How often in our lives do we actually have the awe and wonder, the faith when something happens? And it might not be as big as God's presence on um, Sinai but we have moments in our lives where we see and feel the presence of God but then the moment it becomes difficult again we forget so we have to start with and this is a beautiful thing from the Old Testament if we think about the lessons we can learn if we don't want to repeat the history that has been repeated quite a few times already we have to start by remembering God, remembering His goodness. And um, that is a little example of an altar. You know, it's the story of altars. Altars. Yes, Chris, you want to explain it to us? Okay. Mm -hmm. Every time uh, somebody had an encounter with God, they built an altar, like Jacob built an altar at Bethel. Yes. Do you remember what God did there? Yes. And an altar was stones put on top of each other. Um, when they had to cross, uh, not the Red Sea, but um, when they had to cross over into the Promised Land, they also had to go through a river. And how that worked beautifully was that the priests took the altar apart and took the stones across. And as the stones were taken across, the water opened and the Israelites could go through. And on the other side, they again built the altar. So, a little picture of stones put on top of one another. Am I saying you need to build an altar at your house? No. Um, if you want to, you're welcome. But 
What do these represent? These stones are moments where you saw God, where you experienced God. We all have them. And remembering them. Putting them in a little heap, you can write it down in a diary, you can have a little heap of rocks, <coughs> each one with a, you can even paint the words, the thing that happened. So that when things become difficult, <laughs> I know how difficult it is to do this, but when things become really difficult, to look back on that. <coughs> and to remember the things that he has done. Also, to help each other remember. Um, so, to tell each other of the wonderful things God does. That's why we do things like Nanda said. Because now, all of us know, and when things become difficult, when we do your job, you've got your job now, contracts until December, and we praise God for that. That already is a little bit, that's rock. But, as December comes, the anxiety is going to start again, because is it going to happen again? And all of us know this, it's not just necessary with jobs, with other things. And it's really difficult to not get caught up in that anxiety, and for that thing to become the only thing. But that is where we can remind each other, except Marguerite, remember, in May, May, this is where we were. And remember God provided. Does it mean that he's necessarily going to provide exactly the same thing? <coughs> no, not necessarily. Life is not as um, uncomplicated as that. But will he provide? Yes. Because God keeps his promises. And then that is also a little bit of witness to each other. So he, God even makes it easy for us to start with other people. You don't have to start with the man on the street or the lady on the street. You just have to start with speaking to Marguerite, who is not somebody who's going to bite you. You know her, you drink coffee with her. And that's how you start witnessing, how you start connecting. So he even gives us training wheels. That's actually what the church is. The church is training wheels. <laughs> it's not a place where you come to die um, or sit and be comfortable. It's just training. It's like CrossFit, but just much easier. <clears throat> anyway, please, Sonal. So what do I want you guys to take with you? What, do we, what can we learn from these stories from how the kingdom of Israel was born, from Saul's life, that it's really easy to forget. I think that's our go-to, in fact, if you look at how things happened. And I mean, these guys, I would want to say, I would have more grace with you forgetting God, because you did not have a fire column and a cloud column. You did not pass through the Red Sea. But if they, who saw all of these things, could forget, and every time, then that's our, that's our default. And look what happens when we forget. We try to fix things that we don't need to fix, and we mess them up. Mess them up every time. And we end up paranoid and lonely. If we... Take every stone, Yohan the Israelites would have had a big one. <laughs> all of these events they had had a little stone for, they would have had, an I don't know how many camels they would have needed to carry all that, but it would have been an altar and a half. 
If we take all of these little stones 